World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. As you know, we are capturing many of these stories of World War II. We're starting to add in Korean War veterans as well as Vietnam veterans. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. Uh, all of the shows are, 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 are archived there. That's easy for me to say. Uh, but today I am absolutely thrilled to have on the line with me retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant, Um, And that is Lauren Smith. And Lauren is a veteran of both the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Lauren Smith, welcome to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. Glad to be here and glad to talk to you about uh, my many exploits uh, prior to entering the Air Force in 1952 and uh, why I entered in the first place. And then... uh, uh, when I retired in 1980. Well, I'm excited to hear these stories. As I was doing some research uh, on your story, I mean, it is absolutely fascinating. But let's start at the beginning then. Uh, where did you grow up, Lorne? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Brooklyn, New York, Bedford Stuyvesant. Went to school, uh, public school, throughout uh uh, elementary school, junior high school, high school, and college, all in New York, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I, when I was in high school, my senior year in 1949, 1950, I had a, me along with several of my classmates, uh, we took a physical for the draft because the Korean War was hot and heavy, and they were drafting um, young men and going into the army. Uh, I got deferred twofold because one, I was in high school, and then when I uh, graduated from high school, I went to college for a brief period of time and got deferred. And when I dropped out of, uh, I went to St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York on an athletic scholarship. I was a basketball player. And then uh, uh, the direct board told me that Fort Dix, here I come. And I went, oh, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I think I'll uh, enlist into the United States Air Force. And the reason being me choosing the Air Force, well, Uh, the Air Force, from, from me being a little history buff, had just integrated the services uh, that was under uh, President Truman. And I felt, well, if I go in the Air Force for three or four years and then get out of there and go back to college, that would be okay. And then if they're integrating the services, I can get a fair shake. And that's why I entered the Air Force. Well, and and the reason is is because uh, uh, you're black, right? That's yeah. I'm an African American okay. male. Okay. And uh, with and I said, look to myself, hey, I'm going to go in this Air Force uh, because they were the first ones to integrate the, the military, the services. The Army took a good time, the Navy took a good time, and the Marines took their good time. 
But the Air Force did it first, and I said, these guys want to give equal opportunity to any people of color. And I said, that's what I need to do. And that's why I entered. Well, but my, my uh, thing was, I'm only going to do four years and then get out of there and go back to college. <laughs> Which I thought. <laughs> it's funny how life works out. Years, 29 <laughs> years later, it's, that's when I retired. You know, it's funny how life works out like that. Now, I had the great honor of uh, interviewing another Tuskegee Airman, and that is Lieutenant James Harvey. Oh, my buddy. Yes, yes. Okay, so you guys are he buds. Has re- he has a remarkable story. When we, as you know, I'm I'm called a second generation Tuskegee Airman. Okay. I'm from the, the Korean War through Vietnam. I uh, didn't go through the program, but I always preface that I am not an original Tuskegee Airman. Uh, but we're very proud of those those guys, and I've been with the uh, the chapter that's mm-hmm. up in uh, Denver and Colorado Springs. It's called Hubert L. Hooks Jones Chapter. I've been part of that chapter since 1983, so uh, I'm very proud to be part of that. Well, but, and uh, one of the things that he said that just really touched my heart was that we were going to be the best. And uh, and in fact, a very interesting story. After I interviewed him, I was at a meeting and this young guy came up and I'd say he's probably millennial. He said, would you if you talk to uh, James Harvey again, would you tell him thank you? Because uh, they they, um, you know, were the fighters along the bombers and his grandfather was on a bomber. And he Mm -hmm. said, they saved my grandfather's life. And so I'm saying thank you so that that story is out there. Yeah, they have a remarkable record. And I'm very proud to be part of that group. Like I said, and I keep preface that I am not original, but I do support. And see, I became part of that because those guys and that group, they're World War Twoers, and they're passing away every day. I know. And our chapter had 18 original members, and there's only three left. And Harvey is one of the three. Well, it's a it is a remarkable story, and of course, I've actually interviewed probably over 100 World War II veterans. This this mm-hmm. whole thing precipitated in 2016. I went with a group that took four D-Day veterans back to D-Day in Normandy, oh, mm-hmm. and uh, returned, realizing that we needed to capture these stories. And I'll tell you, Lauren, talking with you guys is just truly changing my life. I don't know that I don't know that much about Korea, but I'm learning a lot. And I did have my first. Vietnam veteran uh, interview recently, and I'm realizing I don't know enough about that. So that's one of the things is to have these conversations from those of you that were serving so that we can capture this and, and people can listen to this and they can learn about it. So thank you. Thank you so much. So okay. where do you want to go from here? Okay. Let me fill you in me entering the Air Force okay. in 1952. Like I, I, like I said, I got deferred uh, in 1951. And then 50, 1952, uh, I, they said, we're going to draft you in f- to Fort Dix. And I said, no, I'll go in the Air Force. And I enlisted in the Air Force. But with Korean War being so uh, hot and heavy, they needed bodies. And they needed uh, people in the uh, to do certain things. They needed medics. They needed security police. They needed cooks. 
they needed technicians in the Air Force I'm talking about. So I ended up being uh, in drafted, not drafted, but enlisted, and six weeks of basic training, and then I went to a tech school of all places, Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, my gosh. Now, this is 1952. The Aerospace Physiological Training Career Field was at Gunner Air Force Base, Montgomery, Alabama. And me being from New York, I was used to covert segregation, but not overt. Mm -hmm. And here I am, a young, I was 20 years old. I wasn't Mm -hmm. a teenager. I was 20 years old. And here I am, the furthest south I had been was South Jersey. And that was it. Uh, And I played basketball and in Massachusetts, in Boston, because I was a jock. I, mm-hmm. I was all Brooklyn uh, basketball player. And so anyway, here I go to Montgomery, Alabama, the cradle of the Confederacy. Wow. And it was an eye-opener for me, quite a shock, off the base. And there was things that uh, my white counterparts were going to school for, for 12 weeks, in the aerospace physiology, uh, the guys would say, come on, uh, Smitty, let's go down to the American Legion. And I knew I couldn't go to the American Legion. So I said, no, I'll take a rain check on that, knowing that we were not allowed to go there. They, that it's was just, it. It's astonishing. You know, yeah, it's just it's was, beyond belief. And, it, and there's some more stories that follow that later on. During, uh, uh, the next year, 1953, I went back to aerospace, to, to Gunner Air Force Base again uh, for another course. And while I was there, I was stationed at Mitchell Air Force Base, and they said, we want you to go get into the altitude chamber business, which is aerospace physiology, but you have to go to school down in Montgomery again. Okay, so I went, and, and my class that was with me, we had some Korean uh, enlisted guys going to the course also, and I have pictures of that, plus my classmates. And we almost had a racial incident in Montgomery at that time. Uh, I had gone downtown with two of my classmates who were white, and we went to a store, and I, we were getting some clothes, some civilian clothes, and uh, it was at Kresge's, and got the clothes, and on our way back, uh, we said, okay, let's take a taxi back. And this t- taxi cab driver pulled up, he was white, and said, I can take them, but I can't take you. Wow. Been pointing to me. So they said, well, we're not going to get in this taxi. Yeah, the guys were, one was from Illinois, and another one was from West Virginia. So we, he said, I said, look, there's a black taxi cab here. We'll get that one. Taxi cab pulled up, and he said, I can take you, but I can't take them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so he said, okay. So he said, let's take the bus. I said, I'm not getting on that damn bus. <laughs> Because at that time, in 1953, 
and the buses segregated. So I said, well, we'll go, but I have to sit in the back of the bus. So he said, okay, we'll sit with you. We get on the bus. This is a city bus. It's going to Gunner Air Force Base. And there's a sign there, colored, white, etc. And I sat right by the sign and said colored. And the, my two classmates, one sat with me and the other one sat in front of me. And the bus driver stopped the bus. And he said, but a southern drawl, you guys are not up north now. You're going to have to break that up or we call the, the sheriff and you'll, you'll have to go to jail. So uh, I said, you guys move up front. And one of the guys from Indiana said, this is disgusting. Here we are over in Korea and foxholes dying next to each other and we can't even sit in our own country in a bus. And he said, yep, that's too bad. This bus won't move until you guys break it up. Uh. And we broke it up and went on the base. And that's some of the things that you had to go through in uh, cities that were segregated off the base. And some problems you had on the base because you still had, remember, this is 1953, and you still have what we call the good old boys who thought that, you know, we were inferior and couldn't do certain things. And uh, we had to prove ourselves not only to be better, but better than better. Mm -hmm. And we were not going to fail at anything we did. And that's how it was. So I'm in the Air Force, 1953. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to do just like I said, 57, I'm out of here. <laughs> well, uh, I was a jock. I played basketball for the Air Force. I, this is a service team, and I played uh, volleyball. I went from one season to the other, basketball, volleyball, tennis. And I was always gone uh playing basketball or whatever the sport was, one of those three. And being in aerospace physiology, we had to teach uh, crew members how to survive at altitude in an altitude chamber. In this chamber, what we did, we took the air out. And the more air we take out of this chamber, the higher we leave the ground physiologically. And uh, it was teaching our crew members um, what the, their symptoms are, it's called hypoxia, insufficient amount of oxygen to the blood system. So uh, we, we would teach this class, uh, teach uh, physics of the atmosphere, uh, life support, and we also had, in 1954, we got what we call an ejection seat trainer uh, to teach our pilots how to use the ejection seat if they had to get out to eject out of the aircraft. And uh, we got, there were seven of them in the Air Force, and we had one at Langley Air Force Base where I was stationed. So uh, learned how to teach about that, et cetera, et cetera. And then in 1957, uh, I went from, from 1953 to 1957, I made Staff Sergeant. Uh, and now I get married, I have a child, and I said, well, 
I better re-enlist because, you know, you got to make some money to, uh, to sort my wife and child. So I re-enlisted, and I ended up going back to where I was the first time, Mitchell Air Force Base on Long Island. And there I am to do what? I'm really there for my job, which is aerospace physiology in the altitude chamber, but they really wanted me to play basketball. <laughs> and that's what I did. And I had a commander that hated it because uh, you're here to go in that chamber. I said, yeah, I'll go. I'm going. And when I got back t from TDY from playing basketball all over the place, uh, wherever I was, uh, I would double up in the classroom and double up in the chamber. And so they wouldn't say, you're not going in the tank. And and I did. And I might say that when I retired from the Air Force, uh, about in 19, just before I retired, in 1972, when I got back from Vietnam, uh, I was fourth in the Air Force for the most time in a chamber. Wow. So they, they could say, you know, I, I did my business in the chamber. Well, let me... You know what, Lauren, let's stop right there. We're going to go to break um, because I want to learn a little bit more about the chamber and also mm -hmm. about uh, Korea before we get into the, the next phase there. Okay, we'll do. I'll, okay. I'll backtrack. Well, in Korea, I never went to Korea. I was okay. in during that time. Okay. I didn't go to Korea until I got over in the, uh, Kadena, Okinawa in 1970. Okay, well, hold that thought. We're going to go to break, and uh, the Rockies are uh, in the heat of summer here, and Hooters is the spot to be this summer. Hooters, oh, yeah. yeah, enjoy Hooters beach-worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help you cool down this summer. They have nine items for $9, 11 through 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items, such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and of course their boneless wings. You can dine in, get it to go, or delivered right to your front door. And uh, be sure and check out HootersColorado.com for more information. That's HootersColorado.com for more information. And let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. We're going to go to break. We'll be back with Korean and Vietnam War veteran Lauren Smith. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of these shows are archived there. And as you know, I'm starting to add in uh, stories of Korean War vets and Vietnam War veterans. And I'm thrilled to have on the line with me second-generation Tuskegee Airman Lauren Smith. Lauren, it's just great to have this conversation with you. Oh, good to be, be back to let me have and... Let uh, let you know just what we went through, what we did, the good, the bad, and the ugly. How about that? Well, truly, <laughs> truly appreciate it. So uh, just a question on Korea. Uh, you did not go over to Korea during the Korean War. You served stateside, correct? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> well, there's a reason I didn't go. Every time they wanted to send me there, and I was only in from, like, came in in 52, and the, the Korean War ended in 1953, 50, 53, 54. So uh, I got, one time I got orders to go there, but like I said, I was a play basketball, and my commander would keep me on the base, and somebody else went in my, instead of me. 
And that happened three or four times while I was active duty until uh, 1968. Let me bring you up to date. On, like I said, I played basketball for the Air Force, uh, for Langley Air Force Base, where I was stationed from 1953 to 1957. And we played all over the place. Uh, remember, this is 1953 to 1957, okay. the climate of in the United States, in the, um, our country, things were segregated, off base. And uh, playing for the Air Force, uh, that didn't make any difference. For example, uh, when I was at Langley Air Force Base in 1956, um, 1955, 56, the, um, there was a tournament in Portsmouth, Virginia. I got there in 1953 in, at Langley, and the, the team, Langley Air Force Base, went to the tournament, which was segregated. The, uh, the blacks on the team were not allowed to go and play. I get there in 1953, 54, that's how the seasons ran. And I said, hey, look at, uh, we have three blacks on the team, and we're the team. And I told the coach, I said, look at, we have no business in a segregated tournament. The Air Force is integrated. If uh, one, if we don't go, you're not going to win anyway. But we shouldn't be going there because the Air Force is integrated. So they either have to accept the whole team or the team shouldn't go. Sounds well, sounds reasonable. They, yep. So we went, the three of us, they led us in the tournament, and that was in 1954, 55. And by the time the dust settled, we won the tournament. <laughs> and I won the most valuable player. Oh, my gosh. That's so yeah. cool. Yes. And... The, there was a, the Portsmouth paper had an article in there. And they said, we didn't have the Globe Travers this year, but we had our fill of them with Langley Air Force Place, and there's a picture of me throwing the ball behind my back <laughs> to one of my teammates, and uh, we won that tournament. And then the next year we went, they did us in. They, they fouled me out and fouled another guy out, it was it was not nice what they were doing, and that's the last time we were there. And uh, also, we played High Point College in North Carolina, and uh, we we uh, I had no idea that what, what was about to happen. Uh, we get on our aircraft, and I looked around, and I was looking for the other black members of the team uh-huh. and they weren't there so we go down to high point and we go into the hotel in our uniforms and it got quiet i mean quiet 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 and they came up to me and said you can't stay here and we put you up at another african-american hotel in High Point, uh, North Carolina. And I went, oh, gosh, here we go again. So I went to the room, and 
the, the person that took me up took my bag and luggage up, and I looked, and there was a potbelly stove in there. And I said, who's going to make this fire to warm the place up? And the person said, there's the paper, there's the matches, there's the kindling, and there's the wood. You know how to make a fire? Yeah. So I made a fire to get the place warmed up. And we had we went to play. They picked me up. We played them. I think I scored about 45 points. <laughs> and we lose. But the coach came up to me after because I played against him home and away. This was the away game. He says, I would like you to come here and be like, ready, like Jackie Robinson. And I said, I can't be Jackie Robinson because, you know, they called me everything but a child of God. And I'm still playing for the Air Force. And I said, nope, I, I cannot be Jackie Robinson here. I cannot do that. And we left. But we played them home and away. And uh, these are some of the things that we had to go through. And then finally in 1961, uh, I go back to Mitchell Air Force Base in 57, and now I'm playing for Mitchell Air Force Base, but I'm also doing my job in the altitude chamber. And you want to know about that, is that right? Yes, I do. Okay. In the Air Force, crew members had to go through a refresher course. Uh, And what we do... uh, like I said, we would put them in the chamber, and they were on a life support system, an oxygen mask. And the more air we take out of that tank, the higher you leave the ground physiological. And we, we would take them up to 35,000 feet, even 40,000 feet. And then we would remove their life support system, and they would get their symptoms of hypoxia. There'd be three of us technicians in there with them to make sure they're okay. And then once they get that symptom, get you, they're supposed to put their mask back on. If they don't, we'll put it back on for them. And we have them do simple tasks, like write their name, rank, and serial number on a clipboard. And when they just close to passing out, we would take the pencil out of their hand, turn it upside down so they have the eraser, give them their life support system right back, and then they start writing with an eraser, and they go, what? What happened? I said, you, you almost passed out. What did you feel? Oh, I felt tingling. I said, did you look at your fingernails? Your fingernails were, were blue at the tips, right? That's cyanosis. That's telling you your life support system has, has failed. And we would tell them how you check. We call a thing called price. What's your price of survival? Check your pressure. Check your regulator. Look at the indicator that makes sure it's working. And make your connections. Make sure everything's connected. And your emergency equipment price. Do that quick check. And if everything's working there, make sure your life support system is on. And if you're feeling hypoxic, get that mask on immediately. And this is what I did for 29 years. <laughs> well, now tell me exactly what what was the purpose of this? I imagine people react differently. So first of all, are you exactly. trying to trying to figure out who can who can make it through and who can't? No, it's not a perfect thing of endurance. It's to get your symptom 
of hypoxia. Like you said, everyone's different. Some people feel like, uh, like I said, look at their fingernails, that their fingernails are turning blue. That's cyanosis, it's called. Also, uh, some people get a dry mouth. Some people get tingling. Uh, and because this is, what well, remember I said, it's called hypoxia, an insufficient amount of oxygen to the blood system. And, and you have like a 25,000 feet, if we took off there, which we did, take off their mask just as a hang down, and uh, it's called TUC, Time of Useful Consciousness. And if you're at 25,000 feet, you have about three minutes. And after three minutes, you start feeling tingling, you get a little dizzy, ooh, that's my symptom. Get my life support system back on. So it's not an endurance. It's just to get your symptom of hypoxia and remember it. Because if this happens in the aircraft, you know something's wrong with your life support system. Or you don't have it on. Or you lost your cabin pressure. Because the aircraft are flying, if it's a transport aircraft, they're pressurized down about seven to 8,000 feet. But they're flying at 40,000 feet or 35,000 feet. If they lost their cabin pressure, we call it a rapid decompression. We even simulate that. We simulate that by uh, we what we call we would have an explosive or rapid decompression. We are at uh, a five thousand feet in one side. We do a, a open up a valve that will immediately get you up to twenty five thousand feet. And when that happens. You hear the bang, you see the fog, get your mask on. And that's what, like I said, we did that, and I was doing that for 29 years. Now, Lauren, this was relatively new, though, because like the World War II guys that I have interviewed, I mean, I mean nope. they, they didn't they have... Didn't, they didn't go through that. Okay. No, because the first physiological training chamber, training chamber, didn't start till 1949. And that was at Mitchell Air Force Base. That was the first training, outside training, uh, physiological training. So you were really on the forefront of this training. Then. Yes, I was the second African American in the field of aerospace physiology. There was a guy just before me, and he only did four years and got out. And I stayed for 29 years doing it. Wow! And I enjoyed doing what I was doing doing that and my specialty was uh, oxygen equipment and believe it or not the other one was escape from aircraft how to get out of the aircraft in the event something happens and how to do parachute landing poles and during my career as uh, I taught escape from aircraft and um, when we had jumpers in the classroom they would say to me, you know what? You give a great class, but you don't have wings. So we finally, all of us did. We got approved by the Army and the Air Force that we could go to Fort Benning and get our jump wings, and which I did in 1968. Okay. 1968, I went to Fort Benning, got my jump wings, came back, and now I'm teaching escape from aircraft. And I have my jump wings to prove it. And now they're saying, 
oh, you know what you're talking about. You're talking about parachute landing falls, and you've been there. And that's what I did also. Okay. Just a question. In World War II, did they have ejection seats in those? Nope. There was no jet aircraft. Okay. Yeah. So this is, again, this is totally new stuff. Oh, yeah. The jet age happened right around 49, 1950, just starting. And we had jets in uh, Korea during the Korean War. Okay. But that was its infancy stage. And we lost a lot of pilots. We lost a lot of crew members, you know, pilots, who said um, they don't want to go eject out of the aircraft. And they stay with the aircraft and they become fatality. And I'm going to go through that, what we had to do to remedy that. that. Okay. Because we were losing too many pilots. So what did you do? Okay. In 1962, remember I told you in 19... uh, 57, 56, 57, we got an ejection seat trainer at um, uh, Langley Air Force Base. And we would put them in this trainer, in the seat, and uh, they would, we would tell them what to do. In other words, throttle back to slow the aircraft back, try to pitch it up. It's a cockpit. And the, the track was 20 feet long. And then we tell them, okay, get your oxygen bottle. You're getting ready to get out of there. Pull that little green apple. And now uh, when I tell you, fire and ready, you squeeze the trigger. And we had a charge in this catapult that was attached to the seat that would thrust them up 15 to 16 feet. And uh, they would feel if they did 16 feet, they pulled 16 Gs. If they pull 17 feet, they pull 17 Gs. And uh, this would give them the sensation of getting out of ejection from the aircraft. And we did this for years. But in 1962, this is what the Air Force found, that if you went through the training of an ejection seat trainer, you had a 95% chance of surviving an actual ejection from an aircraft. 95% survival. Conversely, if you did not take the training, you had a 95% chance of being a fatality. So that says, take the training, you got a 95% chance of making it. Don't take the training, and you have a 95% chance of being a fatality. So the Air Force saw this and said, That's, that, that trainer does that? Get out and start training people. So in 1962, myself and four other enlisted guys, we took the trainer out throughout the Air Force, three days at a base, have the pilots come in, train them, shoot them up the track, three days, then go someplace else. We went all over in 45 days to train every pilot we could train. And the fatalities started going down. Wow. And uh, that's what I did as, as my specialty, ejection seat training. And enjoyed that because here I am saving pilots' lives, teaching them, don't be afraid. <clears throat> don't be afraid if, if you're in a, in a two-seater one front, one back, 
we would let them know that back person has to go uh, first before the front does. Uh, so if they were tandem, and most of the time one would go and the other one would go punch out, at least say punch out or bail out or use the ejection seat trainer. And that, not trainer, but use the ejection seat. And they would be a survivor. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating, Lauren Smith. We're going to go to break. When we come back, let's talk about Vietnam and your experience there. This is Kim Munson with the World World War II Project. We're talking Mm -hmm. with Lauren Smith, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. And be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of these shows are archived there. As many of you know, I'm adding in stories of Korean and Vietnam War veterans. And I'm thrilled to have on the line with me Lauren Smith. He was a second-generation Tuskegee Airman. And we've been talking about his experience in Korea. He was an expert. He trained uh, pilots on how to eject out of their aircraft. And also, what was that exactly, the uh, the chamber? Yeah, the altitude chamber. Every pilot in the Air Force, they know about an altitude chamber. Uh, okay. <laughs> they, they know about it. <laughs> and because uh, the, they had to go through that every three years to get a refresher mm. course on to get their symptom of hypoxia. Okay. And, uh, but we also, uh, those that didn't have agency training, we where we would train them if the base had had the trainer. And any base that I was at, we had a trainer. So uh, I, was, I was the most experienced in the aerospace physiological training field. I was the most experienced uh, uh, teaching people how to use that trainer. The, it was called the MH-15 ejection, ejection seat trainer. Well, and you saved lives in doing so, Lawrence. Yes, Smith. yes. The uh, survivor, the uh, the survival rate after we trained them went up. Uh, we had fewer fatalities. We still have fatalities because some pilots said, "I don't want to eject. I want to bring this aircraft in." And if they did, sometimes they survived, and sometimes they didn't. Wow! But most of the time, when they ejected, they they would survive. Wow. Well, yeah. And, you know, I find it fascinating. You said you were going to go in for four years. You ended up being <laughs> in for 29. 29 years. Let's talk about yeah. Vietnam because uh, in mm-hmm. doing research, I think I saw that you did 266 combat missions. Yes. So how did you get from being a trainer to uh, combat missions? Well, in 19, like I said, I got my wings jump wings in 1968. Also in 1968, I made master sergeant. And uh, 1969, uh, I found out, we have, see, we have, uh, two, we have chambers throughout the world. Well, we had one at Kadena, Okinawa. That's where I could be stationed because we had a chamber there. We had a Jackson C trainer there. Well, I found out that they were flying in Vietnam, and uh, I was deferred. I was number three on the list for overseas. But every time something came up, my commanders would keep me there because, like I said, I was a basketball player, volleyball player, and tennis player. Well, when I found out what they were doing, I went down and volunteered. And three months later, this was in like uh, May, and then in June, July, 
I get orders to go to Okinawa. And my commander says to me, what's going on here? You want to go to Okinawa? And, you know, they're flying into Vietnam. I said, yep, that's what I want to do. If they're flying, I want to be part, part of it. So I end up going to uh, Okinawa. And uh, while there, uh, we, would, we were supporting what they call We Dropped Propaganda. Uh, we were flying to Vietnam, and they called us the BS Bomber. <laughs> we dropped propaganda. <laughs> you know, one week we would drop leaflets, and I, ha- I hate to say this, but we dropped, I was there from six, 1969 to 1972, and w- Every four to five weeks, we would be in country, in other words, in Vietnam. We would either go into uh, Tonsonut or, or Saigon, or Tonsonut, or we would fly out of uh, Ubon, Thailand, or Nankam Phnom, Thailand. And we would, our aircraft, which was a C-130, held 150 boxes. Each box had 80 thousand leaflets wow. and we would fly over Vietnam fly along the DMZ fly along and it would fly along Saigon and kick out these boxes which would turn them inside out and 80,000 leaflets would come out and one week we drop leaflets and I, I hate to say this, they're still picking up leaflets. <laughs> I bet they probably are. Now, how yeah. how did you do that exactly? I mean, are you standing over a? No, you know, what an we open... did. We had, like I said, they were on um, on pallets and rollers. Okay. And we would. Here's why we got involved with it. The uh, crew members would. You uh, would hook up to what they call a walk-around bottle, mm-hmm. and that walk. That, uh, uh, hold on. Okay. That walk-around bottle would supposedly last 20 minutes. There are 25,000 feet with the ramp open, and a lot of the guys who were doing this were passing out from what hypoxia. Oh. <laughs> so. We told them, that walk-around bottle is not going to last. We will build you a system that can hook up to the aircraft system and hook, make hoses that can go from one end of the aircraft to the other. And you can uh, use your life support system. We'll build it, but we want to be part of the mission. And the altitude chamber there at Kadena, that's what they did. They built that life support system. And then when I got there, we improved on it quite a bit. Instead of uh, having something in the middle of the floor, which it was there, we hooked it up to the aircraft oxygen system. And we had hoses, 30-foot hoses that worked, hooked up to the uh, oxygen regulators in the aircraft. And then we built a, a self-stain, uh, what we call a self-staining, sustaining one, to both sides of the aircraft 
and just hooked it up. And then we would be the ones. We had two guys that would put the uh, box on the on the rollers, roll it down to the ramp, and then we had a person there, which you call a hooker. We pull the cable out of the the box, hook it up to a line in the aircraft, and then we had what we call what we call a kicker, kick it out the aircraft. And this cable that was in the box would turn the box of leaflets inside out. And then you'd have 80,000 leaflets falling to the ground. And we dropped leaflets. Uh, we dropped money. Imagine beginning what it'll do to the economy. We dropped money in Laos, Cambodia. And that was one week we did leaflets. And then the next week, we dropped what we call a 15,000-pound bomb that made helicopter pads. And uh, this, um, when I, I, was, I was a amateur uh, photographer. Every mission I flew, I took pictures, took photographs. Mm-hmm. We also worked with friendlies teaching them to, to what we call halo, high altitude, low opening. And we would go out with them at 18,000 feet to teach them how to free fall to 14,000 feet and the chute would open up. And me, me being airborne, I, I did several jumps with these guys. And uh, I have pictures of that on drop zone. And my commander and the hospital commander at at Kadena was asked by the Pentagon to come and give a briefing on what we were doing. They were saying, why are you guys getting all these medals? What are you doing? <laughs> and so I gave him my, if you remember back in the, the 60s, they had slides. Do you remember the slides? Uh-huh. And on a carousel. And I gave him all the pictures. They went to uh, the Pentagon and briefed the Pentagon on what aerospace physiology was doing. And uh, they used my slides to show what we were doing in the aircraft, just just with leaflets, and also the big bomb. And the bomb was called Moab. That's short for mother of all bombs. Uh (laughs) It was the largest piece of ordnance in the Air Force, in the military, flying. Because they had 500-pounders, but this was 15,000 pounds, which made helicopter pads. And when we dropped that, uh, we were supposed to leave, but we never did. We would go back and see what what damage (laughs) it would do. And we drop it from 25, 30,000 feet. And uh, the forward air controller would go along and says, okay, you've got a, a five shipper. That means you can get five Hueys with, with personnel to go do their dirty work or to fight. And because of all that foliage, helicopters couldn't get in. But when we dropped that bomb, it made a helicopter pad. How many times would you say you dropped that bomb? Oh, like I said, I was there three years. One week we dropped paper, and we started dropping that bomb. 
I got there 69, 1971 to 1972. Uh, like I said, one week. So, so what, every three weeks you would drop one of those bombs? Oh, yes. Wow. Now oh, what not, just, not just one. We can, we can drop three in a week. Oh, my gosh. Now, let's go back to the leaflets. What did the leaflets say? Did they warn people to get out of the way? Or, or? No, here's, here's what they, if we, a pilot got shot down, we had leaflets that we'd get into an area and say, uh, crew member got shot down, turn him in, and we will give you, like, uh, five million kip, whatever that was, and that's around $30,000. And that would last them forever if they turned them in. Did you recover pilots that way? Sometimes we would recover them. Sometimes we didn't. Yeah. We, they, they, sometimes they were lost. Uh, the, um, the 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 leaflets would manifold. Uh, the main leaflet was called Chuhoi. That means uh, give yourself up. Uh, and one one time we were going into uh, Ubon, Thailand. That's where our aircraft would be, and our leaflets were being stored in Ubon, Thailand. Well, we were going in, coming in from uh, uh, Kadena, from Kadena, and we would land at Clark Air Base in the Philippines, and then fly into Vietnam. Well, we got side. They said you can't go into Ubon, Thailand. You got to go to Bangkok. Uh, because right now there's some sappers in there trying to uh, destroy some aircraft on the on the runway, which was F-4s. So we landed at Bangkok, spent three days, then got in back into Uban, and they had uh, when they they killed the sappers, and they all had one thing in common: they had a leaflet on them. Chuhoi program, which says, I surrender, and uh, they would treat them and and say, okay, tell us what you've been doing, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, interrogate them. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, they're getting a warm food, a good bed, and then if they escaped and left and came back, that wasn't too good. Mm-hmm. But they all had... There were five sappers that were killed, and they all had leaflets, I surrender, but they didn't get the leaflets out fast enough, mm-hmm. so they were a casualty. Okay. What about, uh, did you guys come under fire often? Oh, yes, yes. So what was that like? Well, we took on fire a few times, but we're at, we're at 25, 30,000 feet, and a couple of times we would see a something going by, a tracer going by. Mm-hmm. Every five rounds you see something zipping by and then our aircraft can we tell the aircraft commander, hey, we're getting shot at. So he said, okay, button up, we've got to get out of here and we'll go someplace else. Or either. See, generally, we, intelligence would say, okay, where well, you're going to drop these leaflets, there's nothing there that can hit you. Um, so you don't have to worry about it. Supposedly, but uh, 
while I was flying, we took on fire about three times out of all my missions. That's okay. all. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lauren Smith, this is absolutely fascinating. We only have a few moments left. Mm-hmm. Is there any other story that you want to make sure that our listeners uh, hear? Yes, I would like to tell you this. Um, I made chief master sergeant at uh, when I got back from Kadena. I went to Pease Air Force Base in New Hampshire. And there I was there from 1972 to 1977. And in 1974, I made senior master. And I went to the senior NCO academy. You ready for this? Ready. Gunner Air Force Base, Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama, again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, but it had changed. Remember, this is 1974. Okay. The civil rights movement changed all that in the 60s. And in the 60s, like I said, I was at Okinawa, 69 to 72, during the height of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And also, what's going on, a lot of black GIs are coming in and want to have big froze, and that's against... Air Force regulations. Your hair can't be, hair can only be so long. And here I am, a career type. I was a master sergeant, twenty years in, and uh, I had a tough time because they would say, "Oh, you're a lifer." Yeah, say, but here's the deal. This is the Air Force. These are the rules. If you don't like it, I'll help you get out. <laughs> But George, you can't stay here. You can't put your hat on. And then I, my commander would say, Smitty, hey, look, you, you, you got to straighten these guys out. And, uh, you know, because we're the, their first line. We're the NCOs who have to take care of our, uh, our men. And I didn't have much trouble. I didn't have any trouble because, like I said, you don't like our Air Force. You want to wear your hair long, I'll help you get out. Or either cut your hair, take your pick. <laughs> and some guy said, I want out of here. Okay, goodbye. Okay. I'll help you get out. Okay. But you can't be in here with your hair that you can't get your hat on. And that's what we, that's what we went through, us career types. <sighs> and I would say that in, I made senior in 1974. I went to the Senior NCO Academy at uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And I have a I have a patch that shows a black hand and a white hand saying we can make it together if we try. And we were trying to make this make it work because remember the civil rights was going on. And so and then I left uh, Pease Air Force Base in 1977 and I came to uh, Peterson. And 1977, 1978, I made chief. And I was the first African-American chief 
in my career field. Oh, my gosh. In 1978. That is awesome. Lauren Smith, we are out of time. This has just been a fabulous conversation. And, yes, you know what? We can do this together. We need a little more unity in in America in 2019. Yes, yes. So, Lauren Smith. We do. Thank you so much. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks signing off. And God bless you and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.